0: Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Ellis Ballard, and if you've ever wondered what it's like to live with life-threatening food allergies, this is a must-listen story. Ellis is a brilliant storyteller, so it's highly entertaining, and please stick around for the conversation afterward where we talk about a whole range of topics, including how all of us can be more inclusive and supportive of people navigating the world with this type of condition. So first, let's listen to Ellis' story recorded live at 21 Soho.
1: In August of 2018, I boarded my first ever international flight at the age of 24 to Gothenburg in Sweden. You see, growing up, my parents never took us on holiday abroad. The main reason for this is the fact that I have a number of life-threatening food allergies, primarily to eggs and to nuts. This means eating food prepared anywhere outside of my safe home environment is a risk, and a risk my parents, understandably, would rarely take. In the late 90s, early 2000s, safe and inclusive practice around food allergies was not as commonplace as it is today. And on a daily basis, I'd be exposed to teachers, other parents, uh, shop staff, even some medical professionals and members of my own extended family who didn't know how to keep me both safe and included. Things like, surely you can eat a little bit of it. Can't you just scrape it off the plate? you're going to have to sit out of this lesson, Ellis. And even friends saying things like, well, aren't you a precious, delicate little flower? And it's worth noting that these attitudes, while reduced, are still very prevalent today. And just to be clear, if I eat something that I'm allergic to, even in trace amounts, I can go into anaphylactic shock. That's where my airways close up completely and I suffocate to death. Thanks to my parents' caution, I never had an anaphylactic attack as a child. I did have some more minor reactions, coincidentally, always to food that was delicious for some reason. But luckily, never anaphylaxis, because I always vomited the allergen up in the end. However, growing into adolescence, my allergies started affecting me in other ways. As everyone else's social experiences seemed to widen, mine began to narrow. Going around a friend's house for dinner, sleepovers, barbecues, group holidays, restaurants, dates. That thing where you put your mouth on someone else's mouth and move your tongue around. A shift. (laughs) The message I received was that these things were markedly unsafe and off-limits to me. And when I did occasionally take part in them, I'd feel like an alien trying to join in with sort of earthling activities really scared of being found out as the kid that could die from kissing or eating human food. It felt to me like other people couldn't be trusted to accommodate me, and constantly being vigilant was exhausting. So well into early adulthood, I kept myself safe mentally and physically by simply not taking part in any activities even tangentially related to food. But by the age of 24... I realized that there were some experiences that I just didn't want to miss out on anymore. And one of those was travel. At the age of 24, I got a passport and took a trial um, self-catering weekend in Paris Um, and finally got up some confidence to think that perhaps I could fly on a plane, stay in a hotel and eat in restaurants like what normal people did. So I flew to Sweden with my brother and a friend Uh, to go on a holiday and to see my favorite band, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, play a show. (laughs) The weather in Gothenburg was really, really beautiful, as was the city. And on that first evening, I triple-checked my dinner order and I ordered it. And it began to dawn on me that I felt a heck of a lot less like an alien there. I sipped on a cocktail and the sun glazed down on me and I I felt like... All of these experiences, these places, as long as I was careful, they weren't completely off limits. The cocktail was delicious, by the way. It was delicious. The cocktail was delicious. <laughs> My stomach began to turn, and I felt thickness inside my throat that I've never felt before in my life. I ran to the restaurant toilet, and I began vomiting up more vomit than I've ever vomited in my life. But this time the vomit didn't stop, and when I came back up for air, I realized that I couldn't breathe in through my nose. It was solid. It was like a cold turned up to 9,000. Air simply would not go in. Taking gasps of breath between the vomiting, I decided it was best not to die in a hotel toilet cubicle, so I moved into the hotel restaurant, where the staff told me that they may have put egg white in my drink. After an ambulance ride, some vomiting, some paramedic aid, more vomiting, a seven-hour stay in hospital, some more vomiting just for fun, and an exhausted Uber ride home, I eventually returned to the hotel, sort of recovered. And the most surprising thing to me about that whole ordeal is that I found it kind of fun. (laughs) Like whizzing around in a Swedish ambulance and through a Swedish hospital, talking to Swedish paramedics about a medical emergency involving a secret egg in my fancy cocktail. (laughs) Like, yes, it was a life-or-death situation, but holy moly, did I feel alive. Look, living with food allergies is hard work. There is emotional, social, physical, and organizational labor involved that most people simply don't see or understand. But I try my hardest these days not to let it stop me doing the things that I really, really want to do and not to stop me living in both senses of the word. And it certainly didn't stop me two days later from having the time of my life in a mosh pit with 200 other King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard fans. (laughs) That should be the end, but the thing is, it's not just about my attitude. It's up to everyone around me to strive to be inclusive as well, even when it seems really difficult or inconvenient. I'm not a delicate vase that could smash at any moment and you shouldn't avoid trying to accommodate me just because you think I might. It's the people who practice inquiry, empathy and action who keep me the safest and the healthiest I can possibly be and I'll try to be that for other people too. Thank you folks.
0: Ellis, welcome to the True Story podcast.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me.
0: It's a little funny to say welcome when you're so central to True Story, but it is great to have you in the guest chair here.
1: Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, listening back to my story is an uncomfortable experience. I
0: was just going to ask you, how does it sound hearing it back one year, almost a year later?
1: I think listening back to my own voice is always quite tricky. I think listening back to a story that has evolved for me in my head since telling it my understanding of that story has changed since then. So hearing a past version of me tell it and sort of draw conclusions about it that maybe I wouldn't necessarily now is interesting interesting. yes
0: totally interesting well let me ask you a couple things so first I wanted to ask the question that's going to be on everyone's mind who is King Gizzard and (laughs) the Lizard Wizard So
1: King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard are an Australian band that sort of cross genres they release a heck ton of music
0: and you're a big enough fan to risk your life to go to Sweden to see them
1: Um, I'm a big enough fan to go to Sweden to see them. I I didn't know that I was risking my life in the process. I I guess when you live with life-threatening food allergies, (laughs) going anywhere can be a risk to your life. What makes the difference is putting the processes in place so that going to a show, for example, or going on a holiday shouldn't feel as much like playing Russian roulette. (laughs) Sure,
0: of course, of course. It's only in retrospect that we know that this was, in fact, a risky trip, but you were ready for it at the time.
1: Um, I don't know. I don't think I was ready for it. I was ready to start making inroads into doing things like taking holidays, flying on airplanes, staying in hotels. And I'd reached the point where I had decided that The only way to find those limits of those things, to find what I can do without stress or can't do without too much stress, is to just start doing them. So that trip specifically was, it was appealing to me because of the band, but, you know, I could see King Gizzard in London if I want to. I I could see them, you know, a train ride away in Europe, but I specifically chose... A plane ride and to not stay in a self-catering place. I stayed at a hotel where they would make food for me. I, on that first day when I arrived, I ate in a cafe something off the shelf, which is something I would rarely even do in the UK. But at that point, I was just trying to see what was possible with the mindset of actually, I think probably all of this is really possible and fine. You know, book into a hotel on the assumption that I'll be able to eat there on the assumption that I'll be able to get lunch. And what I found was, yes, I could for a day. <laughs> and then that evening, you know, I, I I was thinking so much about the food, so much about the food that the drinks I didn't enter my head. You know? I don't
0: think the world's mixologists have caught up with the world's waitstaff. They no. don't know when to let you know about these unique ingredients. For example, I myself had no idea there was egg white in so many cocktails.
1: Yeah, to make it kind of fluffy and that stuff on the top. But it's also
0: fun, they have to shake it a lot, so I think it's a bit performative. Right. Yeah.
1: I couldn't see them make it, but I think my assumption was getting anything where it's a number of ingredients mixed is a risk. But looking at a cocktail list, what it does do, which some menus don't, was it tells you all of the what I thought was all of the ingredients in it. They put this alcohol in, then they put this fruit juice in and they put this in. But clearly there is other (laughs) stuff that goes on. It's just demoralizing that like when things like that happen, you go, Oh, even drinks that I've seen the ingredients of are suddenly more of a risk to me than I thought possible. So then I'm going, you know, when I order a cup of tea, even though I know tea and milk are fine, do I have to tell them? in case they've mixed those things, and then suddenly is my life even less convenient than it was? What feels like a, a new rule base suddenly is added to my already like quite substantial rule base, you know?
0: Absolutely. And you described it so well when you mentioned that there's emotional, social, physical, organizational work Mm -hmm. associated with living with these types of life-threatening food allergies. And I think just hearing your story has raised a few hundred people's experience or knowledge of what someone in your situation is dealing with every day. Some of us might have food intolerances that... Mm -hmm make it inconvenient to miss the butter in the cabbage or, you know, that they they cook something in dairy. But it's a whole other situation when you could end up in an ambulance heading for the emergency room or A&E. Uh,
1: my feeling on things like intolerances and I, I guess any kind of dietary requirements, the way it's kind of bled into popular culture is there's a kind of often like a dismissiveness of it and a kind of mockery of it and i think even with food allergies it's one of the medical conditions that it's uh, it, it feels to a lot of people it seems okay to mock in a way you wouldn't about certain other medical conditions i think so when people come across people with food intolerances or even a food preference sometimes they will often come up to me and say something along the lines of oh no yeah, yeah you've got the proper food allergies but are these other people who like you know it makes the stomach bad or whatever or, the, or they're making it up and I, I it makes me feel horrible when people say that to me regardless of anyone's reason for not wanting or not being able to eat something please please take it as seriously as you possibly can because yes for me it can be life or death but also even if it's just going to ruin someone's afternoon like i have oral allergies as well to a lot of raw fruits and vegetables and that and most of the time i'm avoiding them because i don't want my afternoon ruined and i think that's as important that you take that seriously
0: i think that coincides with just such an uptick in food as social life and food and drink being the center of so many people's social lives Mm -hmm. and it does get complicated to manage and sometimes if people Really prioritize that for how they want to live, then they do add a layer of complexity to their life. But I'm more with you where sometimes I will just avoid the situations that I know are just going to be too complex or just not worth it and do much more cooking at home. It's a little bit sad that we can't manage the complexity of having everyone have available to them what will keep them healthy and, and feeling good. But I wonder if we're at a place where if we can move a little bit less of our social life around food and drink and a little bit more into other realms of socializing and entertainment.
1: It's obviously so ingrained in, in human cultures everywhere is what we eat. And, and that's no different for people with food allergies. People with food allergies in a way have their own sort of food culture, their own way that they deal with food like restaurant staff or or things like that.
0: Are there resources for people with food allergies to be able to navigate different there cities? There
1: or... I'm definitely not an expert in it and I'm definitely still learning how to do it. One thing I struggle with a lot is finding resources for adults. If you do a cursory Google and you go, you know, living with food allergies, traveling with food allergies, eating out with food allergies, it's always directed at parents. I don't know if the assumption is that by the time you're an adult, you, you should already know. Um, It's the thing I I find as a big struggle is is sometimes I'm in a situation, say I'm with friends, the assumption is often that I know what the best way to deal with this is. And I just don't sometimes, you know, I'm just making a judgment call in that moment. So I have to create certain rules that cover a broad base of things. Otherwise, I'd be making 500 decisions in an afternoon. So instead I go, hey, when a thing is like this, if, if a waiter responds to me in, in in a way that's like subjectively to me seems like they don't quite get it, don't eat there, Ellis. Leave. You have to be prepared not to. Otherwise, I just have to make so many micro decisions along the oh, way. Of you course, know of
0: course. Yeah. So Ellis, I have a couple of questions for you coming out of your story. How did your brother react in the moment when you had this allergic reaction?
1: Um, I remember our reactions in the moment were... I think quite surprising that we were both completely calm and logical about it. The hotel staff came up to me and my brother, Lewis, and said, oh, there there may have been egg in the drink. And I I think we both said, was there egg in the drink? (laughs) And she she went, yes. I went, well, you're going to need to, it was as calm as this. Oh, well, you're going to need to call me an ambulance then.
0: How did the staff react?
1: They fairly calmly called me an ambulance. You know, it the whole, that's the uh, kind of a shocking thing about the whole thing was certainly something clicked in my head of you just went, Oh, what we've got to do. Oh, we've got to get an ambulance. We've got to get to the hospital. They're going to help us out, hopefully. And, um, and we'll see where we go from there. There didn't seem to be any panic. It was obviously very, very stressful and difficult for my brother. You know, he's just there by my side in a. (laughs) in a foreign country he's had no food he didn't get to eat his dinner so he's trying to get food in the hospital he's there the whole time he's calling the uber to take us back to the hotel as i leave the the doctor tells me uh that something i learned for the first time despite having allergies for 24 years at that point uh, something called biphasic anaphylaxis biphasic is in the next i think it's think it's in the next 24 or 48 hours you can experience a second uh anaphylactic attack
0: oh that's pretty frightening,
1: and it can be worse
0: oh my goodness um
1: and she just told me that as we were le- <laughs> basically as we were leaving and she was like don't eat any don't eat anything too complex and i was like uh, okay, what what can I eat? And she went, uh, potatoes. And then I left <laughs> Oh my god! <gosh. laughs> to like enjoy your holiday. Well, so, I do
0: love that you ended up in the mosh pit. I thought it sort of begged the question, when did you tell your parents what happened?
1: Me and my brother called them after everything was fine. So post-hospital, post me feeling fine, me having eaten, kept stuff down, called them up with the leading line, everything's fine, I'm fine, I'm healthy and okay. I couldn't do it before then. You know, so much of the processes I have in my mind for keeping myself safe were sort of developed by them on less resources than I have available to me now. I was born in the 90s and so
0: just as the internet is dawning
1: yeah as i'm diagnosed with food allergies and given this information from hospitals and that the the, uh, the availability of information sort of it trickles through you know and you're not receiving it all and you from their perspective they're not googling things like how do i keep myself safe you know going to a party uh how do other people do that what do other people take with them like as a teenager going to a party or like going on a holiday with friends because there's this whole social side to it that obviously them as parents are not necessarily thinking about. They're thinking about how do I keep my child alive Right and a lot of that is just don't do the dangerous things.
0: Right and that this is this story is really about a big move to start living the way you really wanted mm-hmm. to be living. And I thought that the way that you both conveyed the isolation that you could feel at times and then the desire to fully live and I love that line that you had about that you didn't want to let your condition to cause you to stop living in both senses of mm-hmm. the word. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about what are you after in terms of how you want to live? Obviously, you need to keep yourself safe. But how are you thinking about what it means to truly live
1: at this point? It's kind of on two fronts. There's there's a certain self-sufficiency that I want to develop. And then there's the, almost the reverse side of the coin, which is a, a trusting of other people more and more and more.
0: How do you know who to trust?
1: <sighs> it's so hard.
0: I'm, uh, I'm really curious about that, though, because you, you tell us in the story about four or five examples of people that really did not handle learning of your allergies very well, like the scrape it off the plate and the can't you just have a little. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, it's probably not as fun or curious, but have there been any people in your life who've just handled it really well that we could learn from?
1: Yeah. It may have even just been last year. My friends, Chris and Claudia invited me around for a meal around their house. Not a thing I normally do go for a meal around someone's house. They were just so This is a part of it. It's so hard to put your finger on what it is. It felt so low stakes for me to let them know what my requirements were. I felt like so so not a burden to them. They would check in with me about is this thing okay? Is this thing okay? In a way that didn't seem like a big deal. Um, Was
0: that like tone of voice
1: and word choice? Yeah, things like tone of voice, not mentioning it as it wasn't, All they were talking about. And just the small check-ins like that. I can get another example would be a waiter at a restaurant. I had told him I'm allergic to eggs and nuts. Can you double check that, please? When he came and put my plate down with my food, you know, he said what the meal was. And then he went, no eggs, no nuts. And that's just such, uh I can't tell you how much that just calms me right down because it tells me he's been thinking about it. He knows about it. He's not treating me any differently. He's including me in that space. He's letting me know before I've had to ask that he's thought about it. And I just have so much more trust going into that meal. Similarly with my friends, Chris and Claudia, going into their house, I already felt comfortable and relaxed. I didn't have that tensing up that I often have at the start of a meal because they'd done so much caring, empathetic groundwork with me. They're just letting me know this isn't a big deal. This isn't a burden to me.
0: But it's interesting to hear what you're describing because they're they're. Qualities in a friend or in restaurant staff that go way beyond the food itself. Mm-hmm. It's how they are treating you and yep. this idea of helping you be safe and included. Yes. And the included makes you not feel so alien or other in the need to just check on these things. The
1: inclusion's the the biggest part of it for me. Like I am so unlikely to put myself in a position where i am eating something i'm allergic to just because of the amount of systems and processes i've got running but the ability to eat or exist in certain spaces where food threats are in a way where i don't feel like i'm in some kind of bubble or like i'm being held with some gloved hands at a distance that's the part of it that occupies so much of my mind now i guess one good example of it is i do not feel much elation or Happiness when someone tells me about a restaurant that is good with allergies, and they have a good allergy kitchen or whatever. I feel happiness elation when I hear about policies because I can't eat at that restaurant everywhere I go. But if there are good processes and policies, and knowledge and understanding of allergies in restaurants and people's houses and people's parties, just country or worldwide, then. Holy moly, my life becomes so much easier because we're with on some level speaking the same language about allergies and I don't have to look into their eyes and go are they really taking this seriously or are they just being positive customer service person or easygoing friend?
0: You know? I know it's like you're it's like you have to weigh your friend's disposition and how they manage stress and anxiety themselves because I could easily see people who are a little bit more high-strung. Creating a situation in which they internalize what yeah. how they would feel in your situation and bring it to the social environment. Mm-hmm. I, I could see someone with a desire to be vigilant making a much bigger deal out of it than is ideal for you for your social goals.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I can fully empathize with that. If one of my friends or someone I'm working with has a different type of medical condition or a disability or something that I don't know much about, I can go into that hyper trying to do everything to help. But all I remind myself is just check in with them and ask them what they need. Yeah. Um, and sometimes their answer will be, oh, I don't know. And when that is the case, the most helpful thing you can do is go, can we work it out together?
0: Well, all of these belonging cues are so critical. Like, it's one of the things we as humans need is to feel that sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. So if you are in a social situation or have someone in your life with any kind of medical condition that makes their life need to be monitored more closely or need to be accommodated in some big or small way doing it in a way that makes them feel included or part of yep. as opposed to apart from yes. is one of the things that sounds like it would be helpful for people to be more mindful
1: of. Going into writing this story, I thought it was going to be quite an angry story, expressing you know my frustrations about other people not understanding and what other people should be doing. I think in putting it together, I think I noticed how much of the task and burden, if you will, and work of keeping myself safe. All of that work I was taking on myself because I thought it wasn't anybody else's business because it's about me. I think I noticed in myself a desire that scares me a bit to trust other people more with some of that work and to know that good, solid relationships in my life can include Sharing some of that work with other people, that's still very hard for me. I have trained myself over the years to do all of this work in my head and not show it on the surface. Sure, that's a
0: lot to keep in. Exactly. So I have to tell
1: myself to go, you know what, in this situation, you can tell this person that you're having second thoughts about using that toothpaste because actually it might have touched someone else's toothbrush, they might have eaten nuts. It might have transferred. I know you were just thinking about food, but I'm going to not use that toothpaste. That's why. I would normally probably keep that to myself. I don't know whether the right thing to do is to tell that person or just keep it to myself and do something secretly. (laughs) You know, it's not secretly, but privately. And there's probably no correct answer on that. I would like to remind myself and tell people in situations what I'm experiencing without fear of it Then you know alienating me.
0: It's so many things, Alice. And yet, as I hear you describing it, one some of the like core issues that you're describing, like what to disclose and what to not disclose, Mm -hmm. sound like decisions at a different place in the scale that everyone has to make about what you say out loud and what you hold into yourself, and also when you're willing to be vulnerable, like when you're willing to put yourself out there and say. I feel bad that this is going to come across as perhaps needy or very, very specific. But I trust you enough to tell you Mm -hmm. I'm nervous about this. What should we do? Like that's a different kind of interaction about a medical condition. But that gets mirrored in all a lot of Mm -hmm. other aspects of life. And so as you know, as someone who really cares about you, I'm (laughs) like, how can someone who's your friend or in your life make it easier for you not to have to carry that all yourself unless it's better for you to do that
1: yeah and and i don't have an answer i don't either like (laughs) we'll figure uh, it out together uh, but one thing you're touching on there which is a huge part of it though is someone who for example born the same year as me um grew up in the same area as me has the exact same allergies as me is going to have a completely different experience of Obviously, their lives, but also a different experience of allergies. How did their caregivers react to them having allergies? You know, how does just their personality differ? I know for all sorts of other reasons in my life, I often find it difficult to ask for help. I'm an introvert as well. So, like, even if I have calculated that it is the right thing for me to share this information, it's an energy drain for me to do it. So, yes, I might be doing it now for you this afternoon, But then have I got two more appointments this afternoon? Am I going to have to do that again? And by 10 p.m., you know, if I'm out all day, for example, and I haven't been able to eat hot food anywhere, where's my blood sugar going to be? And I make worse decisions when I'm tired and hungry, you know, so that you've got the social side of it meeting the like pragmatic side of it as well.
0: Well, you offered us those three directions of inquiry, empathy and action which is a really nice summary around what you're asking of the people in your extended circle. So you've got that from the people in your close-in circle, Mm -hmm. but how do you let that circle get wider and wider over time? It seems to me that getting to a place where you let more people in and let more people uh, be part of navigating challenging parts of your life Seems like you're on course for that, that that's something that does happen as you exit your 20s and Mm -hmm. enter your 30s. And I have to say, as I listen to you talk about this, I'm well aware that your situation is different from the average person who tells a story, a true story, in terms of the life-threatening aspect of your particular condition. But the themes of what you're describing feel pretty universal, like Mm -hmm. this idea of when to let other people in, when to trust, when to be willing to be vulnerable, how to communicate, how to find the words and find your voice. Like I'm just struck by how much of that feels quite descriptive of the human condition in general.
1: That can be applied to so many other elements of my life that allergies are not a factor in <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> you know and
0: it's so i love how these stories give us a chance to like zero in on a specific part of our life making sense of it from this updated place like from today and then using that to like figure out where to go from yeah. here so i feel like what you've offered is so unbelievably helpful on so many levels, including educating or helping us all to understand better what life is like for someone with life-threatening food allergies, how we can be better friends and colleagues, family members, and then also how it actually applies to larger life themes and topics that are true for everyone, regardless of Mm -hmm. their medical conditions. So thank you so much for sharing all of that, Alice.
1: Thanks for giving me the opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about today's story and conversation, see the show notes at truestorylondon.com. And if you like what we're doing and want to sponsor us, you can do that on our website too. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by Sea noise Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. And just one more thing. Please subscribe and rate us at your favorite podcast platform. It really does help, especially since we're a new podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon.